Well, good morning once again. It is good to see you here this morning, and what a beautiful day it is. I'm going to ask that you would take your Bibles or a Bible provided in front of you and turn to Psalm 51, page 474. If you're using a supplied Bible, and we're going to attempt to to see what this psalm has for us, although it probably could be a series unto itself. As you're turning there to Psalm 51, uh, Adam had talked about, and and we want to be praying for our schools and our teachers. Uh, One other opportunity that you have to be able to serve the schools is Tuesday night at 6 p.m., uh, group will be meeting at Warren L. Miller in Mansfield. We've been doing this for a few years now and doing some sidewalk chalk art, uh, just welcoming the students back on their first day on Wednesday. You don't have to be an artist to do it. Uh, we have kids doing it uh, and adults and people like myself that don't draw or paint or any of those things. Supplies will be provided, but that's at 6 p.m. But do be in prayer for the year, both for our teachers and our schools, uh, and the door that the Lord has opened last year for uh, a Bible study at North Penn Mansfield High School with the students. And so just be in prayer for those things. With that being said, we want to pray before we get into Psalm 51, uh, as Tim has already read for us. So let's do that. Let's bow in prayer. Father, this morning we recognize what we just sang to be so true. Our sin that is so great, our sins that are so many, but your mercy is so much more. We sit here today, I stand here today, only because of your mercy and your grace. We pray that you would extend that even more as we open your word and we look at it, that you would give us ears that would hear the truth of your word, that the gospel would be clear, that Christ would be magnified, that he would increase and that we would decrease. Guide our time now. We pray for our kids as they, they are in their class as well. Uh, With Mrs. D, we ask that you would give her great grace to teach the truths of the gospel to those young hearts and that they would understand at a very young age what it means to follow after Jesus Christ. Thank you for passages like this that, though not easy, uh, reveal the heart of man and reveal your great salvation. So we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. There, there he was in his, on his palace roof while his men were at war. And as he's on his palace roof there, relaxing, taking in the sun, he sees a woman bathing, and it catches his eye. And in that moment, King David entertains adulterous thoughts and then acts on those thoughts. And the woman, Bathsheba, lets David know at some point that she is pregnant. And David goes into cover-up sin mode. We've all been there. He has her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. 
And we find King David, the king of Israel, as a murderer and an adulterer. This is the background of Psalm 51. That's, as Tim pointed out, the inscription at the beginning of the psalm. It is David's confession after being confronted by Nathan the prophet with his sin of adultery and murder. 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 if you want to read more about that. And as you read this psalm, you can feel the, the heaviness of David's sin and him dealing with his sin. As I thought about this psalm, I thought about how we deal with sin, how, how people often deal with sin. I think there's usually two primary ways, although from this psalm we want to see a third way, the right way. But two primary ways people tend to deal with sin. One, we become overwhelmed with our sin. The, the guilt and the weight of our sin just so overwhelms us. It leads to things like self-hate, hypocrisy, covering our tracks, depression. The weight of our sin can, can be unbearable. I mean, how do I live with, with knowing what I've done? Have you been there? How do I look myself in the mirror, let alone come before God? Like, what do I do with this? Some don't know what to do with it, so we turn to addictions. We turn to alcohol and drugs and food and sex and leisure, seeking to just drown out the guilt. But we know from experience that the only thing that those things do is they just make the matter worse and we spiral down. Suicide is on the rise, especially in younger generations. We went to, back in March, we went to the reality conference with our, our youth group. And they did two, uh, the, same, the same session, but two track sessions on suicide. And you know what? Both times the room was filled. Why? Because our young people are dealing with that. They have friends that are dealing with that. And I can't help but wonder if, if some of what is faced in our society surrounding suicide is a hopeless feeling we have because of the weight of our sin, the guilt of our sin. So we, we can, on the one hand, get overwhelmed with it. On the other hand, you might say, Dennis, I don't have a problem with guilt. In fact, I don't ever feel guilty about the things that I do. And we become callous to it. Romans 1 talks about we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we harden our heart. And yet when we feel the guilt of our sin, the answer is not to harden ourselves to the sin so that we just don't feel the guilt anymore. But yet sin is very subtle in this way and, and oftentimes we, we choose that path in dealing with our sin. But think about it. The first time someone steals, they might feel guilty. But if they keep stealing... They might not feel as guilty, but it doesn't make the action any less wrong. You know, and Christians can get caught in these two approaches to sin. But we know, I hope we know as Christians, we, we can't just become callous to our sin because our sin has consequences. The wages, the penalty of sin is death. Ultimately, we will be separated from God forever if our sin is not dealt with. Whether we feel it or not, 
And so we, we can't just ignore it, but yet the weight of our sin will crush us, and so we need a way for it to be dealt with. And this is where Psalm 51, I think, gives us great hope. That the burden, the weight of sin can be removed. We can be restored to a relationship that is free to love and worship God as he has intended. But it is not a popular way. We're still talking about these ways going all the way back to Psalm 1 and 2. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And the rest of the Psalms we see how those ways are flushed out. But the way of the righteous is not always an easy way. So as I look at Psalm 51, and there is, there is a lot that we could just hunker down and, and dissect, but I see verse 17 as the hinge in this whole psalm. David is pouring out his heart. There's all of these requests. He begins, have mercy on me. He's asking God for all of these things as he's thinking and contemplating his sin. But it means nothing if not for verse 17. Like Verse 17 is the promise. God, I'm asking all this knowing that a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Because that's all I have to offer. So if you get nothing else from this sermon this morning, get this. Okay, This is our big truth of, of the morning and how we're going to structure looking at this psalm. And that is this. Only a broken and contrite heart can remove sin and restore us to a relationship that is free to love and worship God. Can you leave that up there for a second? We'll come back to that at the very end as well. But only a broken and contrite heart can remove sin and restore us to a relationship that is free to love and worship God. And I want to approach this by asking the question, why? Why is that true? Why can it only be a broken and contrite heart? Why can't we, we, we do things to erase the bad that we've done? That's where we run a lot of times. Why isn't there some other solution? And to answer that question, we're going to have to dive into the doctrine of hamartiology. Big word, which means the doctrine of sin. And as we dive into this doctrine, we also want to find hope in the person of Jesus Christ. So I have three points for us this morning. The, the first one that we're going to look at related to sin is that sin stains us. Sin stains us. Verses 1 and 2, as David writes out his prayer to God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your, love, your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Look at, look at verse number 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse number 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. This psalm of lament quickly paints a picture of sin that affects us more than we may think. I mean, as we look at David's words, feel the emotion of how he saw his sin. Have, have mercy on me. 
Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me. Create in me a clean heart. Multiple times David speaks of his need to be clean because he sees sin for what it is. His sin with Bathsheba, his murder of her husband Uriah is a stain on his soul and he can't merely clean up this mess himself. You may have caught as we read those verses that each of his requests is dealing with his personal sin. So you can forget about the person sitting next to you and think about yourself because each and every one of us is a sinner. And as David calls out to God for mercy, he understands this is my sin. This is not my, the society's sin. This is not the sins of my parents or my family or some generalized thing. I'm owning this as mine. They're my transgressions. They're my iniquity. They're my sin. He's not blaming anyone else. Well, if I, well, if I had better parents that taught me about these things, then, then this wouldn't have happened. No, David saw his sin for what it was, a stain on his life. He owns his sin. Notice what David says in verse number 10. He says, purge me with hyssop. Now, there's a couple places that this is referenced in the Old Testament. One, Exodus chapter 12 and verse number 22. When Israel is told to apply the blood of the Passover lamb as they are getting ready to come out of, uh, of Egypt and right before the final plague where the angel of death kills the firstborn, of all those who do not have the blood on the, the doorpost and the lintel of their house, but they would have used hyssop to apply the blood to their home, which would lead to the salvation of their firstborn. Hyssop is also what the priests use in the ceremony when a leper is cleansed or in the ceremonial cleansing of those who are in contact with a dead body. They would use hyssop to sprinkle either blood or the water on the altar. And the stain of David's sin was, was no different than the leprosy of Leviticus 14, where there's this whole ceremony and they need to be cleansed of that, where they would be separated from, from all others. And, and David sees that his sin has so stained him that it separated him from God. But now he wants God to wipe it out, to cancel it, to clean up his mess. And you might be thinking, like we often do, no, no, David made the mess and he made his bed, now he has to sleep in it. You ever feel like that? When you look out at other people, it's usually not about ourselves. Justice must be served is often our mindset. And look, Christians ought to love justice because God loves justice. Like We, we should want that to happen. And we certainly believe justice must be served. But as we are careful here to point the finger. We think about our current culture that calls for justice, but we typically want justice for, for that person, but rarely do we want justice for ourselves. We usually want some mercy. Give me a second chance. 
But if we embrace justice, and we should, we embrace it in full. And the only reason that Christians can embrace justice in full is because at the cross of Jesus, he took the judgment that we deserve. He is our justice. He paid the price. So God doesn't just wipe away our sin as if nothing ever happened, like just sweep it under the rug. No, God wipes away our sin and that sin then stained the Son of God as He hung on the cross. Justice is paid at the cross. Anything else would be unjust. Isn't that what David points out in verse number four? Look, I have sinned against you in your sight so that you may be justified in your words. You have said this is wrong, and you have said there is judgment to come. Psalm Psalm 50 paints God as the judge. And if that's going to be true, justice must be served. So David's not just asking God to sweep it under the rug. No, he's trusting that, that God will make good on his promise to pay for sin, but also supply mercy. And so then as we Fast forward into our days of the New Testament, post the cross, the blood of Jesus is applied to the sin stains of our lives, and it blots out the blemish, and we stand white as snow. David was not above God's law. Yeah, he was the king, but he wasn't above God's law. God's law is good and just, and David is held accountable. I know Dr. Seuss has been mentioned a couple times already in this summer series, so I thought I'd I'd make it a third time. We all know the cat in the hat story, right? But did you know the cat in the hat comes back? Like there's a second book. And in the sequel, the cat in the hat leaves a pink stain on the bathtub. If you know this story, and the children are horrified that there's this pink stain after he takes a bath. And the cat then uses object after object after object to get the stain. So he uses the mother's dress, and then the stain transfers to the dress. And then he tries to throw it on the wall, and it's off of the dress, but it's on the wall. And he keeps going through all of these different things. But the stain only transfers from one thing to the next until the snow outside is covered in pink. And everything's a mess. Until he finally releases Voom. And Voom comes and cleans up all the pink and puts everything back the way it's supposed to be at the beginning. How many times have we tried to remove the stain of sin only to find that it's still there? People have moved across the country to get away from the guilt and the problems only to find those same feelings follow them to where they have moved. We can't remove the stain. But Jesus can. And when he does, he doesn't just restore us to the original condition. Like We're not going back to the first man of creation in the state of Adam. We are looking forward to being made into the image of the first man of a new creation. So much better than the original. But the removing of the stain of our sin is something only God can do. Did you notice that in David's pleas, all of them are to God? Have mercy on me, O God. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God. It's according to your steadfast love, to your abundant mercy. So here's his appeal. It's, it's God, I'm, I'm at your mercy here. You're the only one that can remove this stain. And what confidence does he have that his pleas will ever be answered? It's verse 17. A broken and contrite heart leads to God cleansing every stain of sin. So as David is convicted of his sin, it leads him to a shattered and crushed heart. Pride is gone because there is nothing we can do to remove the stain. We can only ask God for it to be removed. So the way up is the way down as we come to him in humility, recognizing his strength, but our weakness. And when we come to him like this, God in his mercy and love will cleanse us. He will wipe away our sin. He will purge us. He will wash us white as snow. So number one, sin stains, and yet God can cleanse. Number two, sin runs deep. Notice verses three to six here. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever or always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret hearts. You know, when we think about stains, those things are on the surface. You might have a stain on a, on a chair, and you think, well, there is a stain there that doesn't look so great, but the cushion underneath is still good. The, fr- the frame is still good. But here, we see that that's not the way it is with sin. Sin runs deep, and it affects every part of our being. Consider how David says his sin is ever before me. It's, it's on his mind. He can't escape it. It's always in front of him. He's always being confronted with what he has done. He can't shake it. It's not a little mistake. It's not a slip up. It's an offense in the sight and against his creator. And it's not that when David, when David says against you and you only have I sinned, it's not that he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah or the rest of their family or even the whole nation. But he's saying, look, before anything and anyone else, my sin is an offense against God. I must recognize who the law setter is, who the rule giver is. Without God's law, morality is left for us to determine. Who's to say it's wrong? Who's to say that's right? Without God's law, what David did wasn't wrong. And you might be thinking, well, well, no, I don't agree with that because obviously it's wrong if it harms someone else. 
And you would be right to think that, but the only reason you think that is because of verses like Romans chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15 that that tells us that the law of God is written on our hearts and our conscience bears witness to them. So being created in the image of God, God has given us a discernment and understanding of right and wrong because we bear his image. Though fallen, it's still there. God created us with certain moral understandings and we are ultimately answerable to Him. You're not answerable to your parents or to the church. I'm talking about the ultimate sense. To your boss, you're answerable to your Creator. And David recognizes that his sin runs deep. You get the sense as you read this that David's sin defines him like it's not just his action but he understand like this is who he is i am a sinner look at verse number five i was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me so david isn't a sinner because he committed this sin he committed this sin because he's a sinner it runs deep it's who he is you see, what, you see the difference here? David was conceived in sin, meaning from the moment of conception, which is when life begins, David was already a sinner. Before he ever stood on the roof and looked at Bathsheba, David was a sinner. Then he acted on who he was. So David here, he's not defined by one particular sin, but he's defined as a sinner from the moment he was conceived, which, which then transfers to each one of us because we are all born in sin. And this is a huge biblical truth for us to accept because we like to think in terms of good people and bad people. And we, we, we quickly make that separation. However, David doesn't see himself as good. In fact, we only need to go to Psalm 53, which David also writes. Notice what he says in in Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven. Verse 2, on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. Any who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. David understood the depth of his sin. I'm sure he went back to Psalm 50, which we didn't read verse number 18 in our early reading, but in verse number 18, it talks about keeping company with adulterers. I'm sure that was on David's heart and his mind. See, we don't evaluate ourselves as sinners horizontally, comparing ourselves to those around us. We evaluate ourselves as sinners vertically, comparing ourselves before perfection. Now, I said that David's sin defines who he is, but but it doesn't need to stay that way. I, I mentioned Psalm 1 and 2 shows two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And really, that lays out two identities. The righteous 
or the wicked. And, and in verse number 6 here in our psalm, Psalm 51, David acknowledges that God delights in truth in the inward being. Like, How do we get counted among the righteous? How do we make righteousness our identity? And what is they, what, what's really being said here in verse number 6? You delight in truth in the inward parts. In other words, God wants us to keep it real. Who we are on the outside should reflect who we are on the inside. Because nobody likes a hypocrite. But do you see the words of comfort at the end of verse number 6? How, how do I get truth on the inward being? And then he says, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. It's an alien wisdom to David. It's not coming from himself. God alone transforms the heart from the inside out. And what must our posture be as we see the depth of our sin? We're back to verse 17. A broken and contrite heart. Only when we have this posture can we fully admit the depth of our sin. We might say, hey, like, I make mistakes and I mess up, but completely wicked or totally depraved? That's not me. Oh, but it is you and it is me. But when we come to God with a broken and contrite heart, He teaches us wisdom in the secret heart. He transforms us from the inside out. So can I ask, do you recognize the depth of your sin this morning? Let me, let me try to make this as clear as I can, okay? There is not one thing you have done this month that has not been tainted by your sin. Not one. Even your best of actions fall short of God's glory. Isaiah 64, 6. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And, okay, not finished. There is not one righteous action or thought that you have had this month that is not a gift from God. In other words, all the bad is your fault and all the good is God's fault. That's the, the picture that is being painted here. But a broken and contrite heart leads God to teach us wisdom and truth in the inward being. And so when we pay, place our faith in, in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross, our stain is removed and he transforms us from the inside out, from, the wick, from wicked to righteous. And so our identity is no longer sinner but saint. Number three, and we got to keep moving, Sin destroys everything. It stains us, it runs deep, and then it destroys everything. Verses 8 to 19, we're going to try to cover a huge chunk here. And so I'll, I'll read verses as we go along. But at times in my house, you can hear one of my kids say to another one, maybe they're building a Lego set or they uh, have something all, all the way they want it, and somebody comes and knocks it over and they say, you ruined everything. Obviously, they didn't ruin everything, but maybe everything about what they were doing in that moment. 
But when I say sin destroys everything, it's, it's not an exaggeration. It really does destroy everything. Look at verse number eight. It destroys our emotions. Let me, this is, so David's praying that this would be re- restored to him. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. D- David's sin has robbed him of joy and gladness. His lack of joy isn't, though, only the, the result of his, his guilt, but he also feels the hand of God's judgment upon him in conviction. And so it's not that literally God has broken his bones, but, but his emotional state is in such a place that it's affecting him physically. I mean, have your, have your emotions ever made you feel like physically sick? Or like incapable of doing something? That's what David is, is wrestling with here. Because his sin is so affected even his emotions. But also, look at verse 11 and 12. It, it affects his relationships, particularly with God. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So David's sin causes this strain on his relationship with God. And in verse 11, there's a specific plea from David to to not end up like the first king of Israel. Remember who he was? Any kids remember the first king of Israel? Call it out. Saul. David, you, you don't think David had Saul? And how he fell from God's grace in his mind? Don't let me end up like that. Strained on his relationship. Number three, though, what else does sin destroy? It destroyed his witness. Verses 13 to 15. So I, I, want, I need you to restore all of this. I need you to have mercy on me. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will return unto you. Uh, the end of verse 14, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So David understands until my sin is dealt with, my witness is tainted. It's ruined. I, I, I can't speak these things until this is restored. My witness means nothing. I'm just labeled as a hypocrite and I'm ignored. And he pleads to be restored because his sin has destroyed his witness. Number four that we see in the text, in verse number 16, it it has destroyed his worship. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So sin has not only destroyed his relationships and his witness, emotions but it's destroyed his worship but but as israel's king and and representative it stood to have an effect on the entire nation and that's what you see in verses 18 and 19 where where he says do good to zion in your good pleasure so so that then that you can build the walls of jerusalem and then we can once again, offer right sacrifices and the worship can be restored. So David's sin affected far more than himself. And the prosperity of Zion or Jerusalem is tied to the righteousness of the king. But David realized there are no shortcuts to worshiping God. 
His sin had to be addressed. It had to be dealt with because it destroys everything. And it's no wonder the world that we live in today is such a mess because each of us, we are the Davids. We are each sinners and we're like little tornadoes as we live our lives that destroy everything in our path. Sin always destroys. Sin never builds up or restores. Never. But what was David's hope that is now our hope? Back to verse 17. A broken and contrite heart leads God to restoring everything that sin has destroyed. How can we experience peace and joy when we have set We have set ourselves against God in sin. It begins with a broken and contrite heart. You notice what he says in verse number 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is God's work that he is doing. This is your, uh, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, which is, as a believer, our connection to God is through his spirit that now indwells us. Our witness is restored in verses, as it was in verses 13 and 15, where he says, Then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness and declare your praise. You see, we can't overlook our sin and think it's, we can just sweep it under the rug by, by evangelizing. And too often, we, we like to cut corners. We, we sin, and we jump right to verse 16, and we start offering sacrifices and burnt offerings, so to speak, of church attendance and giving and ministry involvement and Bible reading and prayer and evangelizing. And we offer all of these sacrifices to God. But none of these things please Him when they are tainted with our sin. And it's only when God touches our lips. I I can't help but think of Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah when he stands before God? Woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And then the angel of the Lord takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips to make him holy. It's only when God touches our lips that we can truly declare his praise. It is God who restores us to a place of worship. And then and only then will our worship be something God delights in. So a broken and a contrite heart must be our posture in worship. When we came in today, what was your posture? Because where there is pride, there is no worship. But where there is humility, we are restored in full Verse 17 is the key to understanding how our sin can be dealt with, how our worship can be restored. And it doesn't matter where you're at in your spiritual journey today. Only a broken and contrite heart can remove sin, restore us to a relationship that is free to love and worship God. See, David prayed for his sin to be removed. He prayed for mercy. He prayed for his identity to be changed, for grace And he prayed for his worship to be accepted and it all rests on the confidence of verse number 17. He's got nothing to offer. He's got nothing to give. He can only call out to God 
Which is why, ironically, as we know David as an adulterous murderer is the only one to be said he's a man after God's own heart. How do we reconcile that? It's because of what the heart that you see from David here. He's called a man after God's own heart because of his humility. And God's heart screams humility. The cross happens because of the humility of Jesus Christ who humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men. So friend, we are no different than David this morning. Whether you're a Christian or not, don't think that you have anything to offer God or earn his favor. We come broken and crushed knowing that our only hope, the only thing that that we can hang our hats on is the steadfast love and mercy of God. Because perfect God became man and laid his life down on a cross, we can have confidence that our sin can be removed, that our hearts can be transformed, that we, that we can worship like we're, we've come to do this morning, only by the grace of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's, it's what separates Bible Christianity from every other religion. Look, we're, we're almost done. Hang with me for just another moment. But I had a friend uh, back in Pittsburgh from Ghana, of all places, Muslim friend, and we would have lots of talks about religion and, and what Islam believed and what Christianity believed. And uh, he said to me one time, Sonny was his name, uh, Islam believes that you ask Allah for mercy. Okay, good, we're on the same page as far as what, what, what we're to do as Christians. But, he said, you don't know if Allah will give it to you until you die. What, what hope is there in that? What hope is there in that belief, that message? There is no hope, but we have hope because when we call out for God to to God for mercy, he will hear us and act based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Every sinner, not just the big sinners, okay, I'll do that, every sinner needs this prayer. When was the last time you confessed your sin to God? I'm not talking about conceding that you're sinned or just recognizing it, but confessed it with a contrite heart. The word contrite and the word contrition, okay? It's the root word there. It's a deep sorrow and a desire to stop doing something. We might think of the word repentance. I'm turning from that and I'm turning away from it. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're just riddled with guilt over your sin. Stop trying to cover it. Stop trying to hide it. Stop trying to fight it in your strength and come to Jesus with a broken and contrite heart. One author, Rosaria Butterfield, she wrote this about repentance, or we might think contrition. Repentance is a Christian fruit, not a social shame. Maybe you're sitting here without a care in the world over your sin. But it doesn't mean that you won't stand before God one day and give an account of your sin. If you don't feel the weight of your sin, pray to God that he would show you the depth of your sin and then come to Jesus with a broken and contrite heart. 
You see, Psalm 51 is not a psalm for those big sin moments in life. Psalm 51 is, is the gospel. And the gospel is now the life of a Christian. It's not just what makes you a Christian. It actually now defines who you are because you must live this out day to day. Every day, we sin. I hope you see that. And every day, we call out to God for mercy. And we rest knowing that God responds favorably to those who come to him with a broken and contrite heart. Let's bow in prayer. Father, take these words and speak to each and every heart that is here today. Have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. Blot out our transgressions according to your abundant mercy. Restore us as sinful people to a place of worship. Thank you for your faithful and steadfast love to us. Thank you for your word that guides and directs and teaches, convicts, encourages us. Use this word like that in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.